Good morning, I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Friday, September 15th. Why CBP closed the Pedwest border crossing? More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The MTS Board of Directors yesterday voted to allow passengers to pay their bus and trolley fares with a credit card or phone. The move came after advocates complained about difficulty setting up the Pronto app. Connor Proctor is VP of Ride SD, which advocates for better public transit. The big impact of having user-unfriendly systems is people just give up. They don't bother going through the whole process. The upgrade to allow open, contactless fare payment will cost MTS $1.2 million is expected to be complete by the end of next March. Thousands of child care facilities fail to comply with the state's lead testing law, and many have yet to face the consequences. Almost 400 child care centers have been cited by the Department of Social Services for failing to test their drinking water for lead, yet nearly 8,000 facilities across the state missed the deadline. High levels of lead were found at a quarter of the facilities that did conduct testing, Some of the highest contamination was found in San Diego and Chula Vista. The county's tuberculosis program and SDSU are notifying people potentially exposed to TB on the college campus, primarily at the Charles B. Bell Jr. Pavilion. According to the county, the dates of potential exposure are from February 16th to June 22nd. Exposures to the general public, SDSU students and faculty, and to other employees are considered to be limited. Dr. Jeffrey Persak is the medical director and chief of the Tuberculosis Control and Refugee Health Branch at the county. The person who developed active TB disease um, was a former employee at Aztec Shops. Um, that in that employee's role, they had predominantly non-public facing interaction. So they were uh, behind the scenes uh, in their uh, official duties. Dr. Persak says fewer than 150 employees of Aztec shops with significant exposure were notified. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Customs and Border Protection yesterday abruptly closed the Ped West pedestrian crossing in San Isidro. Border reporter Gustavo Solis says the closure disrupted morning commutes. No, I didn't know it was going to be closed. Gloria Brown was supposed to pick up her son Thursday morning on the San Diego side of the border crossing known as Ped West. The closure forced her son to use another pedestrian crossing in San Isidro. Yeah, I gotta go over to the uh, regular of uh, the east side and pick him up. And he doesn't have a phone, so I'll go over there. He'll be good. 
Apart from disrupting the morning commute, business experts feared that the closure could also impact the regional economy. You know, we're hugely disappointed to, to hear this news. Kenya Samaripa is with the San Diego Regional Chamber of Commerce. She says the closure impacts jobs, tax revenues, and economic development. We can talk numbers, but it's a huge setback, and it's honestly not only a challenge, but it's a threat to our economy. Customs and Border Protection officials say that the Pedwest closure is connected to an influx of migrants and asylum seekers. However, the agency didn't close Pedwest during a similar surge in migration earlier this year. Officials wouldn't say how long the crossing would be closed, but said they want to reopen it as soon as possible. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. Customs and Border Protection has also been dropping off groups of asylum seekers at the Oceanside Transit Center this week. North County reporter Tanya Thorne says the drop-offs happened the previous two days. The migrants came from countries all over the world, and many didn't know where they were. One Colombian couple got reunited at the Oceanside Station after being held in different CBP facilities. They didn't want to share their names. They said they're grateful to be together and in the U.S. Local organizations were informed of the drop-offs ahead of time and helped migrants with resources like food and water, clothes, and power to charge their phones. They were also helping them coordinate travel arrangements to their sponsors. CBP said the drop-offs are a standard process to quickly decompress the areas along the southwest border. They did not say how many people they're transporting or where they first crossed the border. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. As the world marks Democracy Day, the United States system of representative government is under attack. Investigative reporter Amitha Sharma explores how the pillars of democracy are holding up in San Diego County. Thirty-three months after the January 6th assault on the Capitol, nearly 70 percent of Republicans nationwide still believe the 2020 presidential election was stolen. In the past 10 years, more than 29 states have passed legislation making it tougher to vote. Censorship is on the rise, and a growing number of Americans from both parties believe political violence is justified. How much of this sentiment has seeped into the San Diego region post-January 6th? San Diego Mesa College political science professor Carl Luna says somewhat with potential for more. Politics is local, but it's also national. And if any part of that tree of liberty is being poisoned, it's eventually going to spread out to the rest of the tree. KPBS set out to assess the health of democracy in San Diego through a handful of key indicators, threats to elected representatives, voting, censorship, and local news coverage. A recent University of San Diego poll found 66% of local elected officials reported threats have increased since taking office. Chula Vista Elementary School Board trustee Kate Bishop says sexually violent threats spike against her when she pushes for inclusivity. The ones that are more ominous and threatening are 100% from men, usually conservative men that identify themselves 
themselves as such. Overall, access to voting in San Diego County is strong. California largely prevents gerrymandering by having an independent commission determine political districts. And the state does not have the harsh voter ID laws and limits on polling places that restrict voting in some other states. The censorship situation is a bit more cloudy. There have been isolated attempts to ban books on LGBTQ topics in Oceanside schools and county and city of San Diego public libraries. Misty Jones, director of the city library system, says she's ready for the fight. I feel like libraries are kind of the last stand for democracy, right? They are the location that anyone can come regardless of your circumstances, your background, your beliefs. And that's what we stand for. We stand for freedom of access to information. However, on another key measure of information access, San Diego County is faltering. Its major daily newspaper, the San Diego Union-Tribune, has gone from employing 400 people in the newsroom in the 1990s to just over 100 today. Local television news stations have also faced significant cuts in recent decades. We're missing a ton of journalism that we used to have. Northwestern University journalism professor Penny Abernathy says those journalists covered major beats like education, city hall, and wrote investigative pieces, all hallmarks of local news. It is the glue that binds a community together and binds our society together. It serves this country and this democracy by giving us the information that we need at the grassroots level to make decisions about who to vote for. When we've lost that, there is a great void into which misinformation, disinformation can also flourish. And it has, through highly partisan news outlets and social media. This fragmented news world is a far cry from an era when Americans learned a uniform set of facts from a few media gatekeepers like major newspapers and the big three television networks. We had probably the same number of Americans back in 1965 who were angry, resentful, and looking for a fight, but they couldn't find each other. UCSD political science professor Barbara Walter says today's ecosystem allows people with ideas and attitudes that were historically on the fringe to enter the mainstream. They can find each other really easily. They can be fed information from Putin or from the Proud Boys, whose goal is to actually radicalize these individuals. There's no regulation. And of course, the algorithms just accelerate that. But on this Democracy Day, local political scientist Luna sees silver linings. Americans still prefer democracy. Another nice positive thing, it hasn't gotten violent yet. He's hopeful the peace holds through next year's presidential election and beyond. Amitha Sharma, KPBS News. A California appeals court has agreed to hear a challenge to the state's recently adopted solar rules. Environment reporter Eric Anderson has details. San Diego's Protect Our Communities Foundation is one of three groups which asked the First District Court of Appeal in San Francisco to intervene. The groups argued the rules do not recognize all the benefits of solar, do not encourage solar adoption, and do not expand solar in disadvantaged communities. Attorney Aaron Stanton says the legal petition asks the court to throw out the decision. I have seen these orders 
come out with summary denials, one sentence, the court declines to hear the case. Uh, and that's not what happened here. The California Public Utilities Commission voted unanimously last December to approve the new rules, which increased the cost of rooftop solar. They took effect in April. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. KPBS reached out to the California Public Utilities Commission and they pointed to their legal filing asking the court to deny the petitioner's request. The city of San Diego spent more than $4 million in a single year on unplanned purchases. Now the city auditor found some of the spending may be due to mismanagement. iNewsource reporter Crystal Niebla explains. They're known as confirming purchase orders, and they're meant to be used for unanticipated spending on goods and services that the city could not have planned for. But a recent report from the city auditor is flagging the process. It found nearly 60% of these purchases happened because of errors and poor planning, many related to contracts, lack of training, or, quote, misunderstandings. Auditors suggested many fixes, and by next year, city management aims to set spending limits and publicly disclose these transactions. For KPBS, I'm my news search reporter, Crystal Niebla. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. Coming up, our KPBS arts producer and editor has some suggestions for arts events to check out this weekend. We'll have that and more just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The stereotype that poor people make short-sighted decisions is being challenged by new research. Reporter Katie Heisen has more. Past research suggests that when people feel like they don't have enough money to meet their needs, they make short-sighted decisions, like taking out a high-interest loan to make rent. Does that mean that they're stupid, they're short-sighted, they're impulsive, they just want money now? That's one interpretation. SDSU professor Isha Sharma has another theory. They have really important needs, and paying their rent today might feel a lot more important. Sharma's team found when the need was less urgent, that effect went away, sometimes even reversed. So people actually become more patient, potentially arguably more thoughtful when their needs have longer time horizons. The takeaway? Being poor or feeling poor doesn't necessarily make you a poor decision maker. Katie Heisen, KPBS News. Before you go, arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans has some suggestions for arts events to check out this weekend. She shared the details with my colleague, Jade Heinemann. So first up is the annual Trolley Dances, celebrating 25 years. Uh, And it's a collaboration between San Diego Dance Theater and Metropolitan Transit System. Uh, What can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so Trolley Dances, it was dreamed up by Gene Isaacs of San Diego Dance Theater in the late 1990s. Uh, and she was inspired by this program she'd seen in Europe. And they were also struggling to find performance space in San Diego. Um, and this was something that would solve that. It would They could take this dance outside and it would also bring art, bring dance performance to the people and meet them where they were. Gene Isaacs recently retired in the last few years and Terry Wilson is their new artistic director. The public part of it is a piece of education that's real important, I think, uh, to bring that dance to to people that really won't see it. You know, they may not ever go to the theater to see dance. And Wilson was actually one of the dancers in the company back when Jean Isaacs launched Trolley Dances, and now she's curating it. Wilson and Isaacs both have choreography in the show. And, you know, when I was writing about Trolley Dances, this was five years ago for their 20th anniversary. At the time, I talked to one of the MTS engineers who was he was working a shift that first year. And he said that the dancers actually did try to dance on the trolleys, but they no longer do. What they do is they will find these makeshift performance spaces that are nearby to the trolley stops. So the trolley is kind of a form of transit to get between these dances. And, you know, in doing so, Trolley Dances really does continue to get art out in unexpected places and kind of temporarily offer the solution to the struggle to find performance space, which continues. It was an um, opportunity to present art without having to rent a theater. So I would say, sadly, there are very few theaters in this city that San Diego Dance Theater can afford. You know, they have their own performance space. It's in this transformed studio, a a box-style theater in Liberty Station. But it's small. And, you know, they also do projects with La Jolla Playhouse with their Without Walls Festival. And that's another site-specific, outdoor, public thing, just like trolley dances. Wow. So how does it all work? It's like a little tour. You buy a ticket and you meet at the trolley station in Old Town. There are a couple of performances at Old Town and then you'll hop on the trolley as as kind of like a tour cohort and you head to the next stop along the blue line towards Little Italy and then Park and Market and back. There are six choreographers this year, um, including Gene Isaacs and Terry Wilson, plus Dr. Grace June of BK Soul, Blythe Barton, Kim Epifano, and Dance Arts. And you can sort of accidentally stumble upon it as a passersby. That's a, a huge part of trolley dances, the fact that they're out in this public space. There's people going about their lives uh, around the art. In one of the dances, Wilson said that the dancers will be performing on a ramp that comes up from the parking towards the trolley station. So the dancers will have to adjust and move and reposition themselves as travelers pass by. It's kind of a guessing game to figure out when and where they'll be, but the tours will be leaving Old Town every hour from 10.15 to 3.15, both days, Saturday and Sunday. General admission for tickets is $35, but there are discounted $20 tickets for seniors, military, students, and artists. Oh, that's great. Okay, so let's talk about some visual art. There's two new exhibits opening up at Quint Gallery in La Jolla, including one that's about motel soap. So please tell me more about this. Okay, we'll start with that one, with the soap. It's in the tiny back room of Quint Gallery. It's called the Museum of Blank, which is is basically the art gallery equivalent of a speakeasy. Um, that space is used for more experimental stuff or these curiosities of, of Mark Quint, the gallerist. And this exhibit is definitely that. It's a curiosity. 
about motel soap. The exhibit's called Liquid Ecstasy Dirty Dreams, um, curated by Mark Quint and artist Ethan Chan. And it started with an anonymous collector who gathered motel soaps and motel soap related stuff from around the country. So including there's there's a shirt made of motel six soap packets. It also has used soaps that are they're like mounted to the wall, like fine art and photography of brightly colored suds in washing hands. And I'm guessing that the whole room smells pretty clean <laughs> with all that soap. And in the main gallery, the Quint Gallery, is work by Ryan McGinnis, um, New Charcoal Drawings. He is a longtime Quint artist, and there's going to be dozens of these big charcoal works. And each one is kind of a fragment of, of a bigger story. And all of them are created in the last three years. Both exhibits will open on Saturday with a coffee reception. That's from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Quint in La Jolla. That was KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans, speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hyman. You can find details on these and more arts events at kpbs.org arts. That's it for the podcast today. This podcast is produced by KPBS producer Emmalyn Mohebi and edited by KPBS senior producer Brooke Ruth. Join me on Monday for the day's top stories. Plus, we'll learn about the safety of motorized bikes and scooters. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.